Hello and welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage, the podcast supercharging engagement at work with tips and insights from some of the world's finest communicators. Bruce Daisley is a best-selling author, podcaster and technology leader and an expert on the subject of workplace culture and the future of work. Bruce makes for a fascinating guest and he shares his views and insights in a wonderfully frank and elegant way. During our chat, we covered topics like the importance of humour in the workplace, why preparation and practice is more important than natural charisma, how a well-rehearsed presentation got Bruce's job at Twitter, his thoughts on the secrets of communication success, his view on the future of hybrid working, and why connectedness is so important, and why the Netflix culture document might be a blueprint for burnout. Bruce also has some pretty disruptive views on corporate purpose and resilience, and why he thinks they've been missold to employees. I loved every minute of my chat with Bruce, and there's plenty here to challenge what you thought you knew about culture and engagement. Enjoy the podcast. Bruce Daisley is a best-selling author and technology leader and a leading expert on the subject of workplace culture and the future of work. Until 2020, he ran Twitter in Europe for 12 years and also led YouTube in the UK. His podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, about making work better, enjoys millions and millions of listens. Bruce's book on improving workplace culture, The Joy of Work, has been the Sunday Times number one business bestseller and the FT's book of the month. He'll be hoping to repeat that success with his new release, Fortitude, when it comes out in August. It's a book which argues that resilience is a toxic myth. Bruce, thanks so much for joining me today and welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage. Thank you, Hugh. It's an absolute privilege to chat with you today and I can't wait to get your view on some of the big work and culture trends that you're seeing emerge and how we should think about employee engagement in the future workplace. But first, I'd like to chat to you a little bit about your personal communication style, if that's all right. Um, You've been a hugely successful corporate leader and... You're now a hugely successful podcaster. Is there a distinction between corporate Bruce and podcaster Bruce? Um, broadly, I, I sort of try and be the same in all occasions. And, and, you know, I think probably all of us are in a state of impression management, a, a managing the appearance we give to other people. We feel it most acutely, I think, in the early part of our career where we're, you know, trying to fit in or try not to say something that might look too spiky or you know trying to sort of moderate our regional accent so we don't seem stupid and uh, yeah, we're all sort of trying to impression manage and and as time's gone on you look it's a fortunate thing that I you have to do fewer adaptations or I've chosen to do fewer adapt- adaptations so so broadly the podcast my newsletter and you know how I was at work by the end was very very exactly the same yeah it's interesting what you say about moderating our accents and maybe having a personal self and a corporate self strangely i've always anglicized my name my name is hugh that's how it's pronounced like the 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 newsreader hugh edwards but generally in the office i call myself hugh um and i've i've kind of moderated that Mm. I'm slightly embarrassed to have done that, and I'd like to get out of that habit. So maybe that's a lesson. Oh, for me well, honestly, well. I mean, there's some horror stories. Once you start unpacking that, I met, um, I've met more than one Asian uh, salesperson who they were given anglicised names. So there was one guy, I forget his name now. I met him at a conference, and uh, he worked under the name Steve. 
And it was just because his boss had told him, we can't have names that are too confusing for customers to deal with. We need simple names, simple names. You're Steve, you're, you're Tim. And they'd constructed these fake identities just to get these people to sell. So, like, you know, yeah, it's horrible when you think about those things. I used to work at an organization and uh, one of the truly one of the women who was responsible, woman with a degree, an intelligent person who uh, was responsible for recruiting, went through all of the CVs. And this is 100 percent true. Went through all of the CVs at the start of the recruitment process and took out names that were too hard to pronounce because she thought it would be a pain for colleagues to deal with that and <laughs> i mean we we imagine that as, that's like a sort of life on mars it feels like an era of black and white imagery how could that happen and that was a touchably close distance of time ago yeah, it's shocking isn't it because i guess we are thankfully far more aware of diversity inclusion equity we're we're, we're talking about that far more in the workplace um but I guess if you've worked in the corporate world for over 20 years or so, which, you know, maybe or maybe not we have, um, we'll have seen that that kind of evolution in terms of how that's talked about. Yeah, most definitely. And and I think, you know, most definitely there was a time where assimilation was regarded as the right thing to do. You needed to fit in. You didn't, you know, you didn't want to have any jagged edges. And maybe we, we've evolved an extent from that. But I'm I'm always reminded that you look back at any period and you think you think when you're going through it, this is the enlightened time and everything else was slightly dark, medieval. And then you get to 10 years hence and you go, wow, even that was unenlightened. And there were there were a lot of things that probably don't make sense. So so who knows how we'll look back on 2022 in a few years time. Now, you're someone who I who I tend to think of as having quite a dry sense of humour. Would you say that's fair? Uh, yeah, possibly. Yeah, yes, definitely. Do you think that humour has any place in uh, communications and employee engagement? Yeah, um, really deliberately, but unequivocally, yes. There was a wonderful book last year by two Stanford professors called Humour Seriously. And I think they just make a very beautifully reasoned case for why we spend so much time working that if we're to try and say that this is a part of our life that is going to be untouched by humour and warmth and laughter, then it's an impoverished life we're describing for ourselves. And so they go and they, they make a really wonderful exploration of how important humour is in terms of getting messages across, in terms of building affiliation between ourselves and other people. Here's the fundamental thing about communication. I think like this, what fundamentally it comes down to is that there's a disconnection between message sent and message received. So, you know, the best articulation of this is that when any of us is thinking about doing a presentation, we open up a PowerPoint or a keynote document, we start typing out our thoughts or we start with a piece of paper what we want to communicate. And as a consequence of that, it's just like this overload of information. We don't think about message received until we're in the audience. And so, you know, it's a really good example. When you chat to people about meetings, they generally will go through, you, you ask people to do an audit of their meetings. They go through all the meetings of the week to say that one was awful, that one was awful, that one was awful. They apply a really critical eye to it until it comes to the meetings that they're responsible for. 
and they say, oh, no, this is a really important meeting, where, you know, they'll they'll recognise that in other people's meetings they weren't really paying attention, it was overloaded, like it, was a, it was an energy suck. When it comes to their meeting, everyone was paying attention and it was a really good meeting. So we've got this real dissonance between message sent and message received. As soon as you start from the perspective, my only gift in anything is I've got a really short attention span and I'm very easily bored. And so I applied that to anything I was doing in terms of messages, thinking you've got to get your point across quickly. You've got, to, you've got to do it in an entertaining way. When I had my first proper job, uh, the Monday morning meeting was this horrible brain suck. It was sort of this horrible, uh, really dry hour of communication. And so the first time I got the chance, to, to, we introduced rotating hosts on request. And the first time I got a chance to do it, I sort of ran it like a game show. Just because, and everyone was like, whoa, that was the best meeting we've ever had. Right, so everyone was recognising that was a terrible meeting, but no one had done anything to improve it. And so that was my focus all the time. So when we used to do events, it's always like, okay, listen, this is not just about us telling them what we want them to hear. We've got to think about how we get them to remember what we want them to hear. So it's a very different focus. It, our focus used to be, when we did events, it was like okay there needs to be four reasons for people to pull their phone out of their pocket right so what are we doing so we used to put hashtags above the toilets that you know had puns on them or there used to be um above the bar there'd be a hashtag but this was uh, as twitter because they were all contrivances to make people you know if if you presume that someone pulling their phone out of their pocket to photograph something is the best compliment you can pay in many ways in a visually obsessed world then what are the cues that we're giving how are we so we we had a huge you walked through at one event you walked through a sort of an upended hashtag that was huge uh, upended and that was the entrance to the event like very early days of twitter the hashtag was sort of part of our architecture our brand uh, positioning that we wanted but the intention was how are we going to not be annoyed at the end that people didn't take in our messages. How are we going to help bring the messages to them in a way that they're excited about doing? And I think that's, for me, the essence of communication. Don't walk away from any sort of communication annoyed that people didn't take the point in. Take responsibility for how did you try and get that message across in a, in a way that genuinely, you know, not just trying to please the boss, but genuinely people were interested in, in consuming it. Yeah. Uh, and you, you mentioned yourself, you, you're someone who's kind of bored easily. So you apply your own audience habits to the message. Did you used to get people to, to sense check your messages or did you use your own gut instinct? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, so so if I was running an event, I would try and spend as little time doing the talking myself. And, you know, I'd do some stuff myself. But, you know, my view was we would sit and we would go through. It's really interesting when you work at tech companies, because one of the things that is dazzling at tech companies and there's a whole load of things that happen at tech companies that are um misdirection you know they don't have great cultures they don't have cultures that are better than any other organization you work at but they they're very good at pretending they do and positioning that they do but one of the things that is dazzling at tech companies is that you quite often find yourself at conferences where an engineer or a product person will stand up and demonstrate a new product or a new part of google search a new part of twitter a new part of youtube they'll demonstrate it for you and with a dazzling lucidity. You know, this is quite often a computer software engineer, a dazzling lucidity, a, a brilliant command of what's going on. And, you know, there's an old truism in, in tech that, you know, um, a good demo is, is close to magic. You know, it's, sort of, it's, it's got this quality to it. So you'd chat to these people and these people who you'd fall in love with them 
you know, whoever they were, men, women, whatever, you'd fall in love with the command and the charisma of these people on stage. It was, it was truly dazzling. And uh, you go up to and chat to them afterwards and you say, wow, how'd you get so good? And they say, we rehearsed it 13 times. And you go, Re- really? And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a system. We, you rehearse it sort of six times all the way through yourself. Then you start having an audience. Then you rehearse it in the room to empty chairs. You rehearse it. Now, if you've ever done a presentation, you've done it more than three or four times, you start seeing the gaps in the space in it, the room. You, you say something off the cuff and a joke appears and actually it becomes part of the fabric of the presentation. Once you've done something 20 times, 15, 20 times, it's just got a life of its own. You, you're so in command of it. And yet when it comes to delivering messages in other environments, we just don't do that. And so, you know, I'm really inspired by, you look at these people who, in fact, I mentioned the fact they're engineers. You know, these are not people who are professional communicators. These are not sort of actor politicians who are like used to being on a stage with a microphone in front of them giving. But they've achieved a command of getting a message across to people that, Actually, by evident, it can be learned and it's dazzling to witness it. And as soon as you witness it, you're like, okay, well, I need to stop thinking I'm good at something and put the hours into doing it. So, you know, I used to, when I was, if I was doing a big presentation somewhere, I would go through it, then play it on my iPod at the time or, you know, phone now. I'd listen to it, listen to it, listen to it, and listen to it. And, you know, I discovered by listening to it loads, you'd hear, oh, there's a there's an obvious joke that goes in there. Oh, right, actually, uh, well, well, I'll do a play on words on that. And you start spotting gaps in the middle of it. So actually, I got my job at Twitter because I was doing a presentation representing YouTube at the biggest uh, internet conference in the UK. And, and like, it'd been my ambition to get this conference. Um, in the old days, you got 30 minutes slot, which is a big deal, I think, now. But um, 30 minutes slot. And so I was for weeks, months working on it. And But I learnt that off by heart. I knew inside out. But half of the jokes that ended up being in it, Jimmy Carr was after me and he said to me, yeah, that was, <laughs> he said that was very funny, which was a sort of a, a nice accolade, you know, like, uh, okay, a little bit of a hand up. He's sort of, he's probably going to say that to him. But it, there was a lot of laughter in the room. Um, and it was because I'd spent so long thinking about how those tech people did it thinking what can I do to sort of get it better so you know being really clear about how you're trying to communicate is an obsession of mine that's that's reassuring I guess because you've always come across as someone who is very confident very articulate you know you know your stuff but you you can talk about what you know very eloquently um but what you're saying is you just really need to kind of be persistent about honing it and getting it right before you kind of get out there and do it yeah, I think people, when they're watching something, they hear a message that feels rehearsed or it feels clumsily mechanical. It feels like, you know, these are talking points you're going through. Working in the tech space, quite often you'd be invited in to go on to news programmes. And I would see my peers from Facebook or Google go into these programmes. And broadly, we would decline all, all news offerings. You know, you would a news request would come in, you'd decline it because it's a no-win. Because you're going to go on there, you're going to get beaten. And actually, you know, these companies, they broadly, they don't care. They don't care about the 24-hour news agenda. It's all about long-term political lobbying. It's about winning bigger things. So, you know, but occasionally you hear someone from Facebook going on the news and you hear them and you think, man, but you're repeating talking points that sound so constructed and so contrived. You're not winning people over with this. And so... You know, it's really interesting to watch great politicians, great politicians broadly. Uh, you watch an Obama or a Hillary Clinton or they broadly, they'll have 10 or 20 talking points and a question will come in from the audience. And quite often you'll hear them label it, you know, 
So you'll hear a good politician go, okay, and there's the specifics, these data. Okay, but this is about cost of living. And then they'll go into a very fluent conversational piece about cost of living that's like got some, but they're not trying necessarily to sort of hit specific lines on the script, but more try and evoke something. And it's really interesting to think about that. You know, we know it well. When you see a good speaker, it's because they've got a conversational quality to them. You know, it's what Blair had that Keir Starmer doesn't have. You know, that ability to seem like what you're saying is spontaneous, heartfelt, not filtered. And, you know, that that's the real gift. That's when you sort of, when you hear people communicate that doesn't feel like you can see the script either, like, literally or figuratively behind them. I think that's when we tend to buy into things more. So you need a little bit of natural charisma and natural I don't, th- I don't believe that in at all. You know, I don't believe that at all. I'm an incredibly introverted person. So, you know, and I'm not saying it. No, I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. But it's about it, witness those computer software engineers standing up. It's about preparation, knowing what you're going to say. If you're really clear about knowing what you're going to say, something that knocks you off your stride is something you can easily adapt and accommodate. I don't buy into natural charisma at all. Because let's think about it. Actually, you see really good examples of this. You know, I don't care for cricket. I don't care for Australian politics. But if someone strides into a bar who is like an iconic cricketer or, you know, I've I've been to places, I've been on panels with rugby people who I don't know anything about rugby. But and everyone in the room is gasping that this person's in the room. Let me tell you, they didn't have an aura for me. So an aura is a construction in our heads. And you see really interesting evidence of this. If you have a look at people through history who were regarded in history now as being these larger-than-life characters, at the time, if you go through reporting about them at their time, they're barely ever mentioned. You know, big names in history. Abraham Lincoln now is a colossus of history. But the people who described him at the time did not evoke those, those terms for him. And so it's just really interesting. A lot of it is a construction in our minds and often a construction enhanced by distance or time. So, you know, I don't buy these natural charisma. So the, the, the point about Keir Starmer and Tony Blair, you're suggesting that maybe Tony Blair just put more time into practising what he was going to say and how he was going to say it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's more complex than that, isn't it? I think Tony Blair was able to access a relaxed approach that Gordon Brown wasn't, that Theresa May wasn't, you know. And I don't think he's innately more relaxed. I saw him speak somewhere recently and I saw him backstage and uh, he was very, you know, awkward as uncomfortable as anyone might be. But, you know, when he's on stage, certainly in his prime, he seemed to have this this relaxation to the way that he was... You know, and some of it was definitely constructed. You'll know at the time, if you watch Tony Blair now, he still says look a lot at the start. Says, look, because it sounds like it's a conversation. He used to hold teacups in his hand. You remember that whole thing? Tony Blair used to hold a mug in his hand because it makes him look relatable. So I think some of it is learned. I don't think it's all natural. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, Tone of voice is something I'd like to talk to you about now. It links to what we've been uh, discussing. You speak to lots of different types of audience. Um, I believe you speak at schools sometimes. Uh, You speak with big businesses, small businesses. To what extent do you adjust your tone of voice for the audience that you're speaking to? (laughs) I did something for the police uh, about three weeks ago. It was really uncomfortable. I don't think it went well at all. Probably because I was too obsessed with adapting my tone of voice for that. I was, you know, quite often will open a presentation. If I'm doing something, I'll open it with a couple of 
out of the can jokes, you know, something funny I've seen on the internet, something that's related to what we're talking about. Actually, it's a great gift of communication that I often backwards engineer from. If I see something that I think is really funny, it's like, right, how do I get that into the start of the presentation? And the great gift about that is that people think you're funny. All I've done is show something that it's like starting a presentation with clips of something funny, but does two things. Like as soon as the humor and the laughter in the room, I think it signals to people the tonality of what's going to come. And so, you know, I've done presentations where people are cracking up about things that honestly in another audience with different people would barely have sort of registered a smile. So, but I often open with a clip or something that will warm the room. And that immediately sets things off in a different footing. So there's definitely a, a much more serious version of me that you know I do for some things. When I was that presentation a couple of weeks ago, where Tony Blair, I was like, I was even that I was I was a more serious version. Whereas the bits I'm most comfortable with is like, okay, I'm going to try and signal that this is fun and go try and bring warmth to it. That's great. Thank you, Bruce. Um, I'd like to just chat to you a little bit now about your writing career now you, you a few years ago i think it was 2019 you released joy of work that's right isn't it yeah um and you've got another uh, book fortitude coming out in august yeah now reading having read joy of work and having been fortunate enough to see uh, an early draft of fortitude uh, they're, they're quite different books, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, Joy of Work, I took quite practical tips from that. I yeah. think it was sort of 30 practical things you can do to improve your life of work. Whereas Fortitude is a little bit more disruptive, shall we say. Do you have any tips for aspiring writers or authors? How do you go about thinking about a what might be a best-selling business book? Uh, what might appeal to people? Yeah, so if anyone's interested in any of this, I've got a PDF that's free on my website that everything I learned about writing a book, publishing a book, and why you might want to write a book. Um, so if you are interested in that, it's at eatsleepworkrepeat.com forward slash bestseller. And as I say in there, you might not necessarily want to have a best-selling book, but specifically I go through line by line how the, the motivations that you might have. But look, broadly to, to take a step backwards, it wasn't my intention to write a book right at the outset. What happened originally was I worked in British media organisations and then worked in technology firms. And, and truly, when I went to technology firms, I thought I was going through an airlock from probably what was traditional British but old-fashioned working cultures to the new form of successful, modern, energised working cultures, which was tech firms. And in fact, I found the opposite. You know, the tech firms are very good at creating a mystique of somewhat misdirecting mystique of suggesting that their culture is different, uh, faster, more innovative. All of these things are illusions. You know, Google's not an innovative organisation. Right from the its very inception, most of the things you know about Google are bought from other people. So that wonderful search engine is a construction, but the way they monetize it is bought. Google Maps is bought. Uh, YouTube is bought. Pretty much every, Android phones is bought. Pretty much everything you know about Google is bought from someone else. And look, they've turned it into great success by applying scale to it. But, you know, their cultures are, are no more effective than anywhere else. Anyway, so when I got the chance to set up Twitter in the UK, I joined very early on. I was like, OK, we want to create a special culture here because I've I've worked in places that have had good cultures. I've seen that tech firms don't. And so I set about trying to do that. And so actually four years, it went spectacularly well. Then it went 
horribly wrong. It, the wheels fell off. And at that stage, I became obsessed with workplace culture. It's like, okay, I, I hadn't realised till that point naively how much academic work goes into studying workplace cultures. You know, the, the whole idea of organisational psychology, that this the psychology of bodies of people. I didn't know really the extent that that existed. And so, you know, I started my podcast as a Firstly, it was, it was a slight act of subversion. I was working at a tech firm that was becoming more and more bureaucratic. And I was like, I wanted to say to the firm, actually, look, you know, there's research that says we can do this in a more engaged and, and cohesive way. Um, but secondly, the, the podcast was like a, an act of um, self entertainment really you know I, I did it on weekends I had a lot of spare time at weekends and I was, I was doing it on weekends um, and I, I loved doing it and I got approached by Penguin to, to turn it into a book so look I always think if anyone wants to read all of that it's all laid out in the PDF but um, if anyone wants to sort of add wealth diversity innovative inspiration to their, their jobs doing something is really fun you know like it's why I, I love this podcast here doing something I find gives you renewed uh, interest, focus, different perspectives. So the podcast and the book came sort of like happy accidents, really, trying to stimulate myself to provoke new things. Yeah, that's fascinating. I guess one of the reasons that, that I was really keen to start this podcast is because I recognise that I'm something of an expert in employee engagement, but there's loads of stuff that I don't know. And especially as we've come out of lockdown people ask questions about how do we do this in a hybrid world how do we do the perfect event in a hybrid world and you don't have all of the answers and and that's why I think speaking to people who are experts in a specific area can be so so helpful and I guess that's something that makes eat sleep work repeat so compelling isn't it because you speak to such a broad array of people who are real experts in their their field yeah that's right I mean and it's driven by my own curiosity so I get pitched all the time so I've done about 140 150 episodes sort of had millions and millions of listens and I get pitched all the time you know I, our CEO would love to come on always PR firms our CEO would come on so I introduced a no CEO policy largely because from past experience I've had one maybe two CEOs depending how you categorize it and they were awful guests I sat there afterwards thinking uh, okay how am I going to edit this so I just decided for myself it's an easy way for me if you introduce a rule people don't challenge it the rule is no CEOs and they go okay fair enough and so like it the rule helps you save time in terms of discussions. Yeah, for the majority of it right now, so like if you think of the last two years, I've just seen you know how work's evolving and I've thought, right, okay, I'd love to speak to that person. I did a whole series about community managers, about how some firms are thinking very much in the terms of uh, internal comms. They're thinking, okay, well, in the same way we used to have an office manager, we used to have an, uh, an internal events manager, maybe we need to be doing something to enhance the fabric of our organisation. And so I, I chatted to uh, three or four people who were community managers, new appointments in inside organisations to try and understand how you build a community of people who don't see each other. So like that was all governed by that or the, the most recent episode, I chatted to Nick Bloom, who's probably the world's leading expert on work from home research. Next episode, I'm chatting to uh, a guy called Raj Chowdhury from Harvard Business School, who is convinced that the only long-term strategy for businesses is work from anywhere whether that's right or not i don't know but i'm just so fascinated to hear what he's going to say he says it's because top talent demands flexibility and so if you look at the previous history of how innovations and adaptations have been brought about in you know, the way we work it's all been 
You know, workers have demanded to wear their own clothes. Workers have demanded to have a laptop rather than a desktop. Workers have demanded to have email on their phone. It's all been driven by top talent. And he says top talent right now, the number one ask is they want to work from anywhere. Wow. If that's true, then it upends a lot of the way that we're still working now in this hybrid era. I don't know whether it's true or not, but he's like, he's one of the leading experts on it. So I pinned him down. So I'd much rather chat to him than the CEO of some startup app, you know. Who has been your most, one of your most inspiring guests? Who do you think back on and think, wow, that was, that was a great show? Yeah, I mean, the person that I reference the most and, and enjoy the most is a uh, Turkish-American professor called Zeynep Tan, who wrote a book called The Good Job Strategy, which is specifically about workplace culture in supermarkets and retail stores. And you might think, how's that got an application for most of our fancy, you know, office laptop-based jobs? But it's got a direct application, firstly, for understanding the components of what makes a good job. You know, quite often, the things that disrupt the experience of job are annoyances so in supermarket that is you know no sets of rules about so when you go into supermarket if you say to someone do you know where the um the jamie oliver pastor is now if you ask that they've got a rule about whether they walk with you to the jamie oliver pastor or they point it out to there's a rule Okay, you don't know that, but there's a rule and uh, there's a rule about how many stock lines they've got. So, you know, do they have 100,000 stock lines or 50,000 stock lines or do they have 10,000? There's rules about these things. So, you know, some stores you go into have got very limited range, but it means that the people who work there know stuff about the product. Oh, I love that cheese. It's incredible. They know some stuff about it. Other places they sell so much they don't know anything about it. These are decisions that are about work job design right at the start. But the experience of the job has a lot more bearing based on the job design. So if you're working in an organisation where any request from a client is, OK, we'll try and make that happen. You know, you don't have a pre-thought about offering. So her discipline about firms that give good jobs, who make these prior decisions, is so enlightening. So that was my favourite guest. But again, it's not box office. So the thing that drives podcast listing is big celebrity guests. Now, you know, I could sit there and think, who's the biggest names in business in the UK? Alan Sugar? Come on, do me a favour. I'm not going to be chatting to him about workplace culture. And so as soon as you realise that, and, you know, the podcast has been number one business podcast along the way and sort of been top 10 overall podcast in the past at least um so you know like about it's it's about sort of trying to find a very specific niche niche and appeal to that i think yeah it's a funny one isn't it i, I guess people like alan sugar um i've seen some of his comments uh, on social media about people should just be getting back to the office mm. you know it's uh, getting back to the old ways of work the old ways were the best ways um i think your your view is that flexibility is a good thing right yeah, look i'm d- largely driven by research so my favorite thing in the world was sitting amongst colleagues laughing 30 times a day and it like you know i used to sit in the sort of the core the in the misfits next to the woman who was the office manager next to the hr woman next to a recruiter you know like I used to sit in the sort of a backwater of the office away from people but we'd laugh 30 times a day. And it was, it was like, for me, it was the most life-affirming part of, of my existence. I used to love it. But I think the ship has sailed on that. And if you look into the research, why the ship has sailed on that, it's not necessarily because people no longer want the affiliation of being connected with colleagues, but it's more because the average person is saving about two hours a day. And it just, that two hours a day in a really time-poor world is life enhancing. It means you can cook a meal and eat a meal with the people that you share a house with, or you can you don't have to spend as much time in the mornings battling 
pressing demands to get out of the door to get on a certain time. So a lot of it, we miss that. So, you know, the big debate about working from home is, is it a productivity play? Most of the evidence suggests it isn't really a productivity play. It's a job satisfaction. It's a life satisfaction play. And, you know, so consequently, the average person has been working over the course of the last two years by, based on a massive data set of Microsoft Teams users around the world. The average person has been working 45 minutes a day longer. So, you know, it's not that people are working less, but rather we've just... We've saved two hours a day and most of us actually have paid a little bit back to our firm. You know, there's a, we, we've paid a levy to the firm that by not commuting, we've worked a bit more. But I think the idea that we're going to go back to the way that things were is fanciful. And, you know, Alan Sugar's a, a, a property owner, so I can understand why he would find it appealing. Yeah. I guess, I mean, I, I, I agree with a lot of the benefits of hybrid working and flexible working. I think it's, generally speaking, I think it's a really, really good thing. I guess one of the potential challenges of hybrid, especially with people working from home, from hubs, from the office, they're generally spread, aren't they? Um, is that there, it means a, a greater uh, reliance on digital communications. Now, this podcast is called Delete, Delete, Engage for a reason, because you know, a staggering amount of digital communications that we receive at work, we delete before we even read. Um, how do you think uh, firms can address that challenge when you know the volume of digital comms is is likely to increase, not decrease? Start with empathy. So you know, we had a, a direct issue at Twitter where people were suffering extreme burnout, and they were there was a massive amount of burnout where people were just overloaded, or you know that experience where you get a three-page email, a three-screen-long email from a boss. And, you know, when I first worked at Google, I used to read all of those emails and I used to say to my colleagues, oh, wow, this is really interesting. I love what's coming next. And that most of them had looked blankly to me and say, oh, what are you talking about? They didn't read them. And we forget that most people, if we write a long email, most people don't read it like, you know, it's this, it's this scripture passed to them that they need to take on board. They just don't read it. And we forget that. It's why it's really interesting. I've been looking for product recently um, to buy to buy an accounting product for myself and my experience when I'm going through different websites is I look for the video now that's so interesting as a buying decision now we we kind of know that these pages and pages of text these like case studies I just I want the video I want the video that's so interesting and yet when it comes to internal comms We tend to avoid that or if we do video, it's going to be on a specific platform or we don't allow it in email or we um, people have got to go somewhere and log in and they've got to put their Okta credentials. You know, it's like there's there's all of this barrier to it. But thinking about how you can communicate in smaller, more impactful levels is the way that we take on communication everywhere else. You know, you think about our social media feeds, there's far more video in them than ever before. And yet when it comes to important internal messages, quite often you've got someone crafting a long email that's going to go out. It's like, I understand where that starts from, but the world has really moved on from that. I simply think that sometimes if someone's trying to communicate something, a 60 second video of them saying, listen, really exciting. We've just announced this. Here's why we're doing it. You know, you're going to have a lot of questions. Here's going to be. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that people do a TikTok dance to the latest Lizzo song, but rather they they think about, look, you know, actually sort of simple messages delivered via video seem to be quite effective. In, in people's inbox. Just a quick update. Here's what we're doing with the Manchester office. Here's what I wanted to explain. You know, quick video there. Or 
just finding forums to do that where people can consume it in different ways. So I'm not I'm not necessarily suggesting that this should be, you know, C-suite people trying to chase the latest trends, but just understanding that the way that we communicate and we we take on content now has changed in every other. It's why it's really interesting these are broader societal trends. Most young people under the age of 25 don't use email in their personal capacity. They find it as annoying as going to check a pigeonhole in, in sort of college dorms. Okay, so they don't use it. And so they're very comfortable with messaging apps. It's why Slack has got a very easy ad at adoption amongst younger workers because it's effectively a, it's a corporate messaging app rather than a, an email platform. And, you know, if we look at the way we're consuming content anywhere else, I still see things from people for example a slide deck in many ways has changed a written document for communicating business document we understand that and yet i still occasionally see people will send a document to me that's like a 16 page words document well okay i write this really interesting that that's the way you choose to communicate because i think that's quite acronistic i think actually now sending a slide deck if you're pitching a new business you don't send a 16 page typed document you you send a slide deck to someone probably with a bit more commentary than than you have if you're presenting it but forms of communication are evolving now you can definitely resist that you can definitely resist that actually the ceo loves typing a, a long email that goes to people but it's back to that thing message sent message received you think that you've typed that and everyone's hanging on that people didn't read it they skimmed it they pinged someone else and said, what was that about? And so, I forget where I read it, but you're like someone said the, the, the curse of communication is the illusion that people believe it's happened. And like, if you start from a perspective of thinking, because you've pressed send on that, the message has got through, you've failed. So that's what I say when I'm thinking about different ways of communication. It's like, your objective is to get that message into people's heads. I'll give you a good example of this. At Twitter, we used to have a research department. And, of course, everywhere's got a research department. And I said to the guy who ran the research department, your brief is this. Every company's got a research department and no one knows what the research department has got. No one, you know, they feel like they're going to go and, and ask for the research. I said, look, your job is to get the research into people's heads. And it's only when it's in people's heads that we it really exists. And so that then is, uh, OK, what infographic have you made for it? What, have, what way have you made for people to understand that really simply? Because a research document that exists as a 120-slide presentation has zero value. Whereas a research document that is broken out and we got three memes out of it and we got an infographic and we got a little video out of it. Right. Okay. That's the output. And it's just, I think that message received is like a vital way to think about anything really. Uh, there's one document that I'd like to talk to you about actually that's, that's, I think is, is quite fascinating and it's had a lot of interest over the years. The Netflix culture document right. it exists in various forms yeah. doesn't it online i think you've talked about that in yeah. in, in a podcast of yours in the past what, what's your view of that because that almost it was almost like trying to put down in words what netflix stood for the kind of culture that it wanted to to kind of convey what's your view on on that particular yeah. document there's, there's a slight disconnect between what american firms think about culture and what european and australian organizations would think about culture so uh, quite often american firms and this is just from learned experience I, I i spent all day every day thinking about culture 
American firms often consider culture to be the wiring map. It's like how this connects to this. So, for example, Reed Hastings, one of the writers of the Netflix culture document, talks about culture is about what gets rewarded and what gets punished in an organisation. So specifically, it's about incentives, but it's almost like the highway code. Now, I think if you chatted to Europeans or Australians in particular but about culture, they would say, oh, no, no, culture is like the ambience of the restaurant. Culture is like the, the, the vibe of the party. Culture is something emotional, a layer that exists upon the, on top of those things. So it's an important distinction. The Netflix culture document is effectively a set of a hyper-capitalist set of norms of how they run the organisation. And it's fascinating um, you know, Sheryl Sandberg called it the most uh, important document to come out of Silicon Valley. But it's like the most extreme form of neoliberalism you'll ever encounter. So it says really clearly, if you do a good job, if you work hard, but you, do, you don't do an exceptional job, we will pay you to leave the company. And so I spoke to the other co-writer of it and I said, specifically, what does that mean? And she said, you know, if you get an A for effort, but a B for performance, we're going to pay you off. I said, how much are you going to pay someone? About about two or three months salary. So this is not like we're going to let you get a, a deposit for a flat. We're going to pay you what we we would consider probably a legally required settlement but there's other things along the way so some of the stuff that's become stuff of legend about the netflix culture document is a unlimited vacation unlimited holiday but and so when reed hastings wrote a book about it a couple of years ago he's like yeah we want people to take as much break as they want when i spoke to the other person the hr woman who co-wrote that document she was like no 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 we want people to work as hard as they can without distraction, without interruption. You know, maybe they won't stay here for a long time. Maybe like burnout is almost built into their business model uh, and they'll work four intense years here, but then go off. But, you know, it wasn't like, oh, feel free to take that long-awaited 16-week trek around India. It was more, don't feel the need to take any holiday. So, you know, it's really interesting. And there's little things in there. I know quite a few people who've worked at Netflix and it's quite a cutthroat organisation. Even now, people get fired very, you know, you'll be going on a business trip with someone and you'll get to the airport, you'll get a text saying, George isn't coming. And it's quite a cutthroat organisation. Now, can every organisation learn from that? You know, I I would say a qualified maybe. Mm, That's really interesting. Um, You were uh, a guest uh, quite recently on Stephen Bartlett's Diary of a CEO. I listened to the podcast, really good. And and you actually got a moments slot as well, which is he has those little kind of best ofs, doesn't he? You you appeared in that, which is good. I thought, oh, well, good for you, Bruce. Um, Now, one of the things that you said in your uh, chat with Stephen was that you felt the perfect company size is 100 people or less. Uh, What did you mean by, by that? Yeah, unit size. Because what you what you find is that when you get over a hundred people, you start getting so many codependencies that it, it becomes a gravitational pull on the organisation. So I, as you add people to an organisation, you know, if there's two of us, these these sort of one line of relationship. If there's three of us, then these what three lines, and it, the, these things grow, sort of grow exponentially. And so when you when you start adding more and more people, after 100 people, you generally don't know everyone's name. You start finding that you're in meetings with people you don't recognise. And that's where quite often we start being disconnected from a sense that we are having an impact on the job we're doing. So a, a sense of personal control, personal autonomy is one of the biggest impacts on our well-being. And if you feel like 
I feel like I'm contributing nothing here, you know, or I don't know why I'm in this meeting or I don't know what's going on here. You sort of lose disconnection from it. You lose the sense of sort of motivation about doing your jobs. And we broadly see that in bigger units. Quite often, it's almost better to, to say to teams, this is a different team, part of the same organisation, on a different floor, but don't feel the need to loop them in on everything. And as teams get bigger, the amount of time we spend in internal communication goes up exponentially. So... What can businesses with, I mean, I know you speak to some businesses with 10, 20, 30, 70,000 employees. I, I heard the podcast that you did at Lloyds Bank quite recently, which is fascinating. Um, what can huge companies do to kind of maintain some sense of culture when you're so spread over, over countries and you've got so many employees? Yeah, when culture most authentically exists, it's when it exists at a team level. So you, you quite often you'll witness this. People will say, our culture is slightly different to the overall company culture or, you know, our team culture is really tight, cohesive, humour driven or, you know, friendship driven organisation. But the company overall is a bit more corporate. And that's because culture most authentically, most acceptably exists at a team level, really. So, you know, that's where it's most potent. I think beyond that, though, there is something about sort of trying to have a clear framework for how the company what are the things in the, to read Hastings' point, what are the things that the company rewards or punishes? Really good cultures have a sense of connection between people despite differences. So you'd call it bridging capital. But the, the idea that, you know, the young workers, the remote workers, the older workers, they, they've all got a sense that they have a shared focus of why they're doing something. So trying to, what I would say, the, the best cultures I've seen recently have been, I saw one organisation that said, we're not obsessed with like these three days a week in the office or these two days a week in the office. Our culture is Wednesday plus one. And the reason why I love that is because the big thing that we often got misty-eyed and, and romanticised about the office was um, the network effect of it. You know, the fact that you did meet people that you didn't see every day. And so Wednesday in their model is that. It's like Wednesday's the big coming together. You, you know, now I think a best way to do that would be to say no meetings, no long-standing meetings on Wednesday. So you can arrange a quick gathering, but you shouldn't have any calendared, scheduled meetings on Wednesday. So arrange something spontaneous or a team brainstorm or whatever, but you, know, you shouldn't have your regular week. And then plus one was, we just want the office to have a bit of a buzz to it for the rest of the week. So pick your day. It might be that, okay, me and such and such meeting clients on Thursday, so actually we'll do our plus one that day. Or, you know, actually we're closing the month in, in accounts on Monday, so we'll have it that day. Wednesday plus one. Best, best articulation of trying to make sense of this because there is some really strong proven benefit of people feeling connection to each other by getting together face to face really strong evidence even the companies that are fully remote or call themselves remote first they value these gatherings these coming together these moments of people sort of forging face to face connection so you can't underestimate the importance of it but I think we probably might be expecting too much of it right now yeah. You um you spoke quite recently to a, a chap, I think his name's Dan Coyle, mm-hmm. a culture expert. Yeah. Um and he was talking about something called uh fun, deep fun, I think he was referencing. Mm. Uh, we talked a little bit about humor and engagement in the office. And w- w- what did he mean by deep fun and and h- how does that work? Yeah, I didn't fully buy it. So his um his feeling was cuz I was really intrigued with him. This is a guy who spent time going to Pixar, he spent time um, you know, Pixar famous in movies for never really having a flop. Um, although I've seen Cars 2. <laughs> uh, he spent time with some of the, the most successful sports teams in the US. And so I was interested. In, he he was 
I think what he was saying there is something that transcends the superficial. So he said, oh, this team were really effective because they set out to find the best coffee in the world. I just didn't really buy it. In fact, I was really disappointed with that because he's quite a famous culture writer mm. and I found it a bit insubstantial. Mm. His um, description of the culture at, is it the San Antonio Spurs? Spurs yeah. That was interesting. It was, it was. But the really interesting thing about that is that San Antonio Spurs, they coach their... They're a basketball coach, team, that's right? That's right. The coach Popovich there has been like the longest standing coach and like won more matches than anyone else. But he's obsessed with team dinners. And like, you know, so he, he puts on these dinners. If they're traveling around, they'll have dinners. That creates moments of connection. Now that is really interesting. And so... What came from that was that this guy, I think the way that Dan Coyle described him is that he's, he's got an entrepreneurial sense of forging connection. All the time he's thinking, how can I make my young new players feel connected to my older coaches? How can I make my, my coaching squad feel bonded? How can I make my players feel bonded? All the time, forge connection, 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 connection. And it's, look, that's a really valuable sense of us thinking about how can we create strong cultures right now because I think I, I chatted to one organisation I did some work with one organisation and they said we used to have a really outstanding culture here people used to s describe themselves as part of this company rather than part of the group they would say there's something special it's why they stayed here and then they were seeing you know from early last year they were seeing big increases in resignations and they were hearing in the exit interviews people were like I used to think this was a family now it's a job and you know, it's almost like the scales have dropped from my eyes. I'd sort of bought into something that was not cult-like, but transcended just mere employer relationship. And I think, you know, they were presented with this, that actually people are now seeing their job quite tactically. Like, I get up, I do this job. I don't feel the need to buy into it. Now, I think, you know, what the learning from Coach Popovich would be there is that any of us... He was the... The Batsen and Coach at San Antonio, Antonio Spurs, yeah. Is that any of us who are longing for a sense of greater connection, you know, maybe getting more enjoyment from our jobs, forging personal connections with other people probably needs to be more deliberate now than it was before. So Coach Popovich is a good example of that. You know, putting dinners together that have got some thought into them. In the old days, we might come into the office five days a week and on Wednesday something really funny happened. And we all had a good laugh and something happened. We were Someone brought out some cake or someone opened a bottle or something at five o'clock. And, you know, actually there was a moment where we properly laughed today. That was really good fun. I love those people. Um, now, I think the truth is the ship has sailed to some extent on that happening all the time or the, the chance of that randomly happening. We've got to be a bit more thoughtful. And so, you know, it's, it's a moment for whether it's community managers or people who are going to tr try and build and plan and construct a layer of connection over the top of what we're doing. I think it's a really interesting time. Yeah, that's it's fascinating. Um, and I guess Coach Popovich is is probably quite a good example of thinking of it as a, at a corporate level of a manager that people love to work for, mm. right? And just looking at that more personally for you in your career, you know, hugely successful career in the corporate world and you know now in podcast events and, and, and as an author. But uh, thinking back to your time in the corporate world, was there any individual that had a real impact on you in terms of the way that they worked or the way they inspired you and the team? Yeah, a, a lot along the way. You know, um, I always loved managers who communicated very honestly to me. I loved managers who sort of 
would tell you what you did wrong. Not um, dressing it up would sort of say, look, you did this and it wasn't it wasn't right. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Normally with me, you, you shouldn't have said that. Um, and But I love that. I loved direct honesty. I loved sort of the, the earned transparency. And I'm still good friends with a lot of those people now. So for me, you know, but I also admired and adored normally peers who were able to fill a room with laughter. You know, people who were able to animate a whole group of people through their actions and sort of were able to bring life to a group. And when you've witnessed that, you know, um, I've worked with a few and actually I'm, I'm sort of a heat seeker for it. When you witness someone who can animate a group, you realise, wow, that's a real skill. And we need to sort of, we need to bring people like that in. We need to, you know, it's just quite often when I've had a team and it's like, it's felt good, it's felt high performing, but flat. We need to do something. It was a really good example of this. I chatted to um, a guy who, Mark Durand, who's like, um, he goes and embeds himself with groups. Uh, I think they call it an ethnographer. And he goes and embeds himself with groups. And so like one of the groups he embedded himself was um, Army Hospital at Camp Basfield in, in Afghanistan. But another group was the Cambridge boat crew for like one year. And he, he told me something really interesting that the Cambridge boat crew, these are like heavily measured individuals so you know they've had all they've been on uh, exercise devices they've had all their performance measured so they know statistically speaking who's the strongest group to go in the boat but uh, one year the year that he was studying there was one person who wasn't the best on any of the things but he was hilarious and so when they were together they just felt it's like a real sense of connection of bond of like they were superhuman and in the run-up to the oxford uh, in the the oxford race that he was studying they fired number one they fired their coach the team rose up and fired the coach and number two they brought this hilarious person out of the reserves into the crew and they planted it and they, they won the boat race and it really speaks to the fact that there's something that exists when people have a group connection and affinity that transcends like the metrics driven approach that we might produce you know there is something magical about that and i think that's the you know that's the holy grail of people who sort of study workplace culture how can you try to create something that creates something special on top really yeah that's not forced fun yeah it needs to be authentic absolutely yeah yeah, it's really, really interesting. Right, the last section that I'd like to talk to you about, Bruce, um, is about kind of engagement buzzwords, corporate buzzwords, words we're hearing a lot more about in the office than maybe we did 5, 10, 15 years ago. And the two buzzwords that I'd like to talk to you about um, are number one, purpose, uh, and number two, resilience. If we can start with purpose, um, how important do you think purpose is to an organisation? So I think both purpose and resilience have got a lot of things in common. Is there effectively a packaging up of loose ideas to meet a demand that exists? So, you know, both purpose and, and resilience um, are really nice constructions that are simplified terms that because there's a demand, either we need to motivate our workers. Well, have you tried purpose? his purpose or our workers are feeling burnt out have you tried resilience his resilience and both of them are very convenient heavily packaged things products that don't really work and so purpose for me there's plenty of reasons why when you go into like the arguments for purpose and the the descriptions of it it seems 
great and, and very reasoned. Purpose in its broadest sense actually has got a lot of sense to it. So, you know, Dan Pink wrote the book Drive about motivation and purpose was one of the critical pillars. But purpose at the core essence when he was talking about is understanding why you're doing something. You know, so why am I creating this spreadsheet? Because this is the place where all the figures come and look. If no one ever looks at your spreadsheet, it's never used, but it's just there as backup for once every six months, someone, then you lose that sense of purpose because I'm doing something that doesn't matter. I get all of that. Purpose, however, has been turned into something bigger. Soap powder companies say our purpose is to allow play, children of the world to play without fear of getting dirty. Hang on. Uh, that didn't occur to me as I was adding it to my Tesco shopping basket. Or, you know, we create shaving foam to allow every man to be the real version of who he wants to be. Hang on, what? Hang on, it's just a product. It's just a... But they've t- it's turned into this big, august thing. Now, actually, it's become inaccessible for a lot of people. So, you know, I chatted to one and he said, the only way that a lot of people have learned to cope with modern work is managed irony where they pretend that they go along with things. They pretend that, yeah, 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 we're keeping the world's kids clean for dirty play. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Yeah, And that they believe it's crazy, they believe it makes no sense, but they just go along with it. Now, I think actually there's a lot to be said for, right, understanding why you're doing something, absolutely, fundamentally understanding. But most purpose actually comes down to, um, it's, it's far more personal. It's about connection with the people around you or knowing. You know, so it might be, why I'm doing this job is my family's really important to me or paying off my student loans really important to me. And so I'm going to focus on, that's like that's my objective. And why I'm doing my job is, actually, I really have a good laugh with these people. We've got a good sense of we're doing some good work here. So I've worked a lot in bars and restaurants. But um, I think I mentioned Zainab Tan earlier. And Zainab Tan studies supermarkets. And, you know, you might say, well, does someone who works in that supermarket have a real sense of purpose that they or do they actually take an innate pride in trying to do a good job and that's more often it's more about identity than it is about purpose for a lot of people you know turning up at work you want to keep customers happy because it reflects well on you that you've done a good job and and to my view i think purpose has been sl- slightly overinflated to the extent it often can't stand up if you go to conferences on workplace culture which i often do you turn up and like everyone's talking about purpose and then you go and meet the organizations and the people there are you know exhausted worn out they don't necessarily buy into the purpose that's been advertised i think it's it, for me it's an overinflated idea yeah identity is more important i think identity mm. yeah okay and what do you mean by identity you know just um either personal identity or, or, or connective identity so yeah. you know so i'm really good at you know doing this job anytime i chat to someone recently who's sort of responsible for uh you know running some part of the rail infrastructure and she said like i'm really i'm really good at doing this like everyone in my organization knows i'm really good at doing this right personal identity i know i can do a good job at this i'm capable at this in addition it goes beyond that it's like actually you know when i used to work at in fast food I, i wasn't really bothered about the company's reputation but it was more about oh yeah yeah yeah, we're getting these orders out quickly. Really good team today. Everyone's working well together. Everyone's giving each other benefit of the doubt. And it's about sort of the shared sense of collectively we're doing a good job. And that shared identity is a really big part of that. So when you look at look supermarket workers, 
they'll take a real pride in keeping customers happy. And, you know, no one wants a long line of customers at a till and then customers being angry. They're, but they're delighted when, when they've worked together and the queues are short and customers aren't being unhappy. It's a real sense of satisfaction that we should never trivialise that comes from doing a good job. It's, it's more about identity than it is about purpose. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Thank you, Bruce. Um, so moving on uh, to, to resilience, and I know that you said that the two are connected, uh, but you, you've sent through a uh, copy of your new book, Fortitude. It's brilliant read, by the way. Really enjoyed it. Uh, one of the things actually I really liked about it was you, you which is unusual for a, would you categorise it as a business book? Sort of popular psychology, but adjacent to business, yeah. So maybe slightly unusual for a book in its in its sort of genre area. You started with quite a personal story mm. about uh, an experience in, in Beirut. Um can you just talk a little bit about how that experience maybe um, inspired you to then go on and, and write a book about a subject? Yeah. Ten years ago, we'd go weeks and months without hearing the word resilience. The word resilience has sprung up and is somehow sort of being foisted upon us by our employers, by politicians. We're hearing it everywhere. And so specifically, I was in Beirut where there was this uh, very YouTubeable, if you want to check it out. But there was this very big explosion two years ago. It shook the whole city. It was several thousand tons of fertilizer had been left, or expl- high high explosives had been left in the port, and it exploded. And by God, did it explode! You know, it was like the first we knew, a whole building shook for thirty seconds. Then all the air in the windows was sucked out. Then, like, there was just like the the whole city shook in uncertainty, and like there was. Thousands of people, hundreds of people killed and lives changed. And it was like this decimated. The sound for the next week of the streets was just glass being swept up. It was just it's decimated the city. But um, the BBC said, well, if we know anything about the Lebanese people, they're resilient. And then New York Times said, oh, Beirutis are a very resilient people. OK, I'm seeing this word resilient a lot. And it seems to be directed to people who've had misfortune and kind of are expected to get on with it. It's like, okay. And then I was on this radio programme with Robert Peston, actually. And uh, Robert Peston was on this programme about the time, just after that, that all the A-levels had been oh, yeah. banjaxed, if you remember that. And um, and these kids who'd been studying, broadly it was state school kids who suffered the most because the way the algorithm worked. But state school kids had been studying for 11 years, 12 years, and uh, they'd been predicted A-A-B and they got B-D-U. Okay, uh, D-E-U or whatever. And uh, Robert Peston's response to that was to say, well... Children need to be a bit more resilient. Hang on. Right. We're seeing that word again. But there's something in common that we're seeing it when people who've had misfortune are just expected to stop moaning about it. And what you discover, firstly, so the word is politicised. But secondly, how does it intrude into into our world of work? Well, we're experiencing colleagues being burnt out. And, you know, according to some research, 75% of employees last year suffered some degree of burnout. And so what's been happening, though, is that around all of that, training organisations are coming out and saying, we've got a resilience training course, and this is what commonly happens. It's a brilliant misdirection. So rather than your work and the way you're working be unsustainable, you know, you're expecting people to be connected to their computers 60 hours, 70 hours a week. There aren't emails for 70 hours a week. Rather than that being unsustainable, no, 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 no. It's the fact that employees aren't resilient enough. It's brilliant reframing. It's a brilliant reframing because it's saying rather than 
this is not right. If, if someone described you that the next generation's Usain Bolt was training 80 hours a week, you might say, I don't know much about athletic training, but that seems too much for me. And yet we're doing the corporate version of that and none of us are saying, okay, we need to change this. We need to, actually, we need to start saying no and stopping things. So resilience is, firstly, it's this politicised term. Secondly, we're subject to a lot of misdirection. Now, does resilience exist in its purest form? Absolutely unequivocally yes let's look at where it exists the people of ukraine are like the most inspiring example people who are showing bravery that we would cower to even imagine ourselves in that situation or they're showing sort of this strength but it's hard to talk about it without using the word collective strength and that's what resilience actually comes from resilience if all of the examples uh, you find of it when it's actually demonstrated it comes from when we feel connected to other people it feels emboldened supported shored up by the people around us and that's the challenge because so when young kids are told they need to be more resilient we should be saying how do we support these kids so they feel more resilient well, when our colleagues are saying we, we don't feel very resilient it's like number one are we giving them enough personal autonomy, enough control over what they're doing? If you're opening your diary and you've got 12 hours of meetings the next day, you're not going to feel very resilient because you, you, you feel a breathless helplessness. Um, so giving people a degree of personal control and then enabling them to feel connected to other people. So it goes through a lot of the, uh, the misguided research of, about resilience and how most of that research has been not peer-reviewed and and but has nevertheless ended up growth mindset is the best example yeah, carol dweck right yeah it's like pretty much on the curriculum of every school in the uk and yet as one person who reviewed it said the only time i can find examples of growth mindset being replicated in research is when carol dweck was the researcher and like heavily replicated people have tried to prove it works and but man that idea is stuck because everywhere I looked from the um, the syllabus of Eton to a local comprehensive in Kentish Town, growth mindset is everywhere. But, you know, most of the resilience training that has been done that's based on this work, when you look into it, it has zero impact. And that's why this is alarming, because schools are building their curricula around grit and growth mindset. We're going to introduce some resilience training, and it it demonstrably doesn't work, and that's why it's worrying. Now, can you make people more resilient? Well, there's really interesting examples. Looking at uh, kids, teenagers, during the first two or three months of the pandemic, and go rewind the clock to that. Remember the first two or three months, news came on, you can't leave your house. Hang on, what are we going to do? You're queuing for a four-pack of toilet rolls every morning outside Asda. You know, you remember those like weird yeah. moments. In that moment... Children who reported having meals with their families in the evening, their resilience went up. And there's the clue you need. Resilience is about our connectedness to other people. So, you know, I, I recognise that the pandemic went on so long after that that maybe those things changed. But in that first flush of that weird experience, when we felt more connected to other people, it tended to, certainly with kids, it tended to improve their, their resilience. Resilience is connectedness. Jurgen Klopp is a, a wonderful example of someone who understands how connectedness seems to be a motivator. When he was at his former club, Borussia Dortmund, he said to uh, one of the, the team people there, we need to turn this. The culture here is too individualistic. We need to go from me to we. Right. Well, that's pretty much the essence of resilience, going from me to we. 
There's really good examples of it. When you remember, I don't know if you follow these things, but right at the start of the pandemic, Liverpool were 20 points ahead in the league. They were going to win the league for the first time in 30 years. And there was became a serious prospect that the league was going to have to be cancelled. Couldn't get these games done. Actually, you know, if we delay the start of next season, then we're sort of borrowing from ourselves. We're going to have to cancel the league. And, you know, a club where one of his forebears had said that, you know, football's not a matter of life and death, it's more important than that. Jurgen Klopp released a statement, 370 word, released a statement of, you know, what he felt. And it's really interesting, like he ended up saying, look, it's really clear life is more important than football and we love football, but life's more important. But throughout it, in sort of 370 words, he used the word we or us or our 17 times, like, you know, a really big part of how he communicated it. And that understanding that that connectedness is what protects us is, a, I think, a really big understanding. Of, There's a psychological safety. Element yeah, yeah, there it, is. Yeah. yeah, there is. There is. Yeah. Look, Bruce. Really fascinating. I could speak to you for, for for hours. There is one final thing I'd like you to do um, to finish up. There's a there's a little section um, that we finish with on delete, delete, engage. Quick fire round. I've got six questions for you uh, that I'd like you to kind of answer as quickly and as instinctively as you can, if that's all right. You ready for that? It's like fingers on the button. I am, I am. Stuff. Okay, here we go. Sum up your communication style in three words. Simple, simple, simple. Really, I'll keep it simple. Of all of the communications you receive, roughly what percentage do you delete without reading? I archive rather than delete, but that's just a semantic thing. Um, about half. What was the last message that landed in your inbox that really grabbed your attention? I mean, I, I get people who pitch me my podcasts all the time. And so quite often PRs say something that feels very inauthentic. They'll say, hey, I was just listening to that episode and I really liked it when you said this and you you feel like uh, I've seen this template before. Um, I just love it when something is brief, often personal, so it comes from someone without a gatekeeper and seems like it understands what I'm trying to do. So, like, you know, reducing the gatekeepers actually makes a big impact quite often for me. In your opinion, what's the one thing a business can do to boost engagement? Think about message received, really. So think about how people are receiving messages in their wider life. And look, can you reduce the amount you're communicating? Can you keep it simpler? Can you make it human? What makes a good communicator? Where you can't see the brief, where you can't see like... When when you can, you feel the fabric of it without seeing the puppeteer, really. You know, it, it feels... A bit uncomfortable sometimes when you can feel like I know why this is being said rather than a, a human approach to it. Which communicator, alive or dead, do you most admire? Uh, I'm always fascinated by Alistair Campbell. Like he's got a really interesting perspective and, you know, his accomplishments with Tony Blair were pretty extraordinary, really. He reviewed your book as well, didn't he? He did, he did. Give it a but, good review, I suggest. But that's because I don't know him. I just yeah. spent a long time trying to get to get a hold of him. Yeah. Bruce, thank you so much. Thank you. It's fantastic. You. Really enjoyed that. Good. What an honour. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from Delete Delete Engage, why not follow me on LinkedIn and subscribe to the newsletter at deletedeleteengage at substack.com.